Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 367 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Rendezvous Docking. Ascent Stage Dump, and Ken's EVA. Last time we stopped with John and Charlie in the Ascent Stage of the Lunar Module, closing in on Ken Mattingly in the Command Module. But, upon close examination of the video of Apollo 16's lunar liftoff, Mission Control saw some pieces fly loose. Now, They were concerned about possible damage to the lunar module. They ordered Ken to take some pictures of the limb to help verify nothing serious was wrong. Fortunately for John, he had not noticed any abnormalities on board the limb so far. When everything was checked out, it was discovered the pieces that flew loose were part of the sheet metal covering the back side of the limb, and they had jarred loose during launch. But the integrity of the spacecraft and all systems were completely intact. After John and Charlie finished the picture-taking maneuvers for mission control, they got into position for docking. But time kept marching on. They were approaching the Terminator, which meant There were only a few minutes to go before sunset. Docking in the dark was difficult, so they began to get a little anxious. Okay, I'm approaching. Your attitude looks good. I'll tell you what we have captured. John and Charlie held their attitude, and Ken began to move in very slowly. Charlie couldn't see him. But John observed out the small window overhead on the left side of the spacecraft. Okay, about uh, five feet. Doesn't look like it. They don't have any barber poles. There we go. Took a couple extra blurps to get you. Okay, are you free? Okay. 
Okay, it looks, uh, looks pretty fair. How about if I just retract you? I believe we're there. Captured, captured old Ryan. Very good. We were wondering what took you so long. Yeah, he's all locked on. We're doing these uh, fancy maneuvers up here. Hardly anybody ever gets to do a 360-degree yaw on the moon. The probe did not capture the lunar module until some extra velocity was added by Ken. When the capture did occur, John and Charlie felt a big jolt. The lightweight lunar module shuddered as the heavyweight command module made contact. The crew felt a tremendous sense of relief to be docked with the command module again. They had made it back. They were docked and they were secure. The lunar module had performed flawlessly. Of course, Ken was happy to see John and Charlie too. However, he hadn't had time to be lonely. Even though he had been orbiting all alone, he had been busy conducting many orbital experiments and taking photographs and running the command module single-handedly, which was a full-time job. After capture, Capcom immediately called. Ryan, this is uh, Houston. Uh, we're about 28 minutes to LOS, and I have about five pages of uh, timeline changes. Whenever you're ready to copy. While John prepared the lunar module for the transfer of the equipment to the command module, Charlie copied the new schedule. The new plan was for John and Charlie to do a partial transfer power down the lunar module, and then drift over to the command module where they would eat a meal and get some sleep. The next day, they would complete the transfer and jettison the lunar module. Charlie argued that they should stick with the original plan of doing a complete transfer and immediately jettisoning the lunar module. He wanted to follow their published procedures, which he knew were correct, but Mission Control overruled him. While reading the changes over to Charlie, Capcom Jim Irwin seemed to be trying to set the Guinness Book of World Records for fastest reader of checklist changes read over the air. And Charlie quickly fell behind. Okay, uh, Miss Finn Uplink update, uh, delete step one. Okay, then on page We'll delete page 15, 16, and 17. And then on page 18, under IVT to CSM, delete step two. And prior to LEM to CM transfer list, add. Perform final deactivation for contingency checklist, page three. Hey, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Hold on, Jim. Okay. You're going faster than he can move. I can't turn the pages that fast. I'm on, I've deleted uh, page 16 and 17 and I'm on page 18, go ahead. Okay, under IVT to CSM. Capcom was reading over a complicated set of changes because it required the crew to do procedures in an order they had never practiced. 
One procedural error could lead to a serious problem. As a quick side note, it turned out Charlie was right. The next day when they powered up the lunar module and set it free, instead of holding attitude, it began to drift in a random manner. They had hoped to have a controlled impact of the lunar module on the moon to get some data for the seismic experiment, but they were unable to control it and it drifted away. Charlie was convinced that happened either because he incorrectly copied a change or was given a wrong procedure. The limb eventually crashed due to lunar gravity anomalies. Since Houston didn't know exactly where it landed, it was not useful to calibrate the experiments on the surface. That hurt Charlie's ego. He prided himself on never making a mistake. But it didn't seem to concern mission control, except for a few scientists that were disappointed. Okay, back to the transfer. As they readied themselves for transfer into the command module, their biggest job was cleaning up the dust and trying not to track it into Casper. In zero gravity, dust was flying everywhere. Charlie called it a dust storm in the cockpit. John and Charlie tried to clean it with a wet towel, but they did not do a very good job. So, when Ken opened the hatch, dust started floating over into the command module, and he got upset. He grabbed his vacuum cleaner, floated it over to them in the lunar module, and closed the hatch, saying he would open it up again when they finished vacuuming. With this little handheld vacuum, John and Charlie proceeded to clean up as best they could, but the vacuum cleaner failed after 20 minutes. Finally, after transferring to the command module and grabbing something to eat, Capcom radioed. And Apollo 16, uh, we've got all we need for the night. Uh, why don't you press on through there and then you're uh, pre-sleep. Uh, just record the readouts. Uh, don't bother sending them down and we won't bother you anymore. Just uh, hit the sack. See you in the morning. Roger, the sun sinks slowly in the west. We better find farewell to all MCC. Roger. Back together inside the command module, Charlie and John learned that Ken had gotten a little upset with mission control while they were on the moon. The problem was mission control had, in real time, completely rewritten his checklist. Prior to launch, Ken was promised by at least one flight director that if the lunar landing was delayed, they would not change the checklist. Totally revising Ken's checklist in real time with no way for him to check and verify everything as he had done in the command simulator was very difficult for him to fathom or accept. He was understandably upset. Ken did the best he could with a new timeline on the lunar surface and expertly operated his scientific instrumentation module in the Simbay. He overcame several anomalies, such as when a main bus B warning light for overvoltage came on when he turned on his panoramic camera. He also had a mass spectrometer boom that did not fully retract 
after its first extension, and a mapping camera that took more than three minutes to retract on its first try. Charlie and John commiserated with him. It was very difficult for one person to completely redo a timeline and then execute it. John and Charlie thought, as Ken did, that it would have been far more valuable for Ken to do his job on the old timeline, only starting six hours later. But that didn't happen. Well, with EVA-3, lunar liftoff, rendezvous, and transferring equipment, it had been a long day. Finally, after being up almost 20 hours, the crew was able to put up the window shades and go to sleep. April 24th, 1972. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, 189 hours, uh, 29 minutes ground elapsed time. Uh, we're standing by now for a wake-up call to the crew of Apollo 16. Apollo 16, Houston. That's Capcom Hank Hartsfield making the wake-up call on Apollo 16's 59th revolution around the moon. Hello there. Good morning. Already? Are you still snoozing? How's your writing arm this morning? Now, now. Will he get the sleep out of his eyes? John came to Charlie's rescue with that wait till he gets the sleep out of his eyes remark. But after a good night's sleep, the very first thing in the morning, Houston was waiting for the crew with a full day's schedule. The decision had been made to cut short their stay in lunar orbit and bring them home a day early. The crew was disappointed and had argued with Mission Control not to come home early. But they did not prevail. Their mission had originally been planned for 12 days duration, giving them a full day in lunar orbit to conduct further experiments. But because of their earlier problem with the command module control system, management was nervous and asked them to come home early. If the SPS engine didn't work properly, this would give them an extra day to repair it before getting low in electrical power and other consumables. Once again, all their checklist had to be changed. Charlie ended up spending literally hours copying adjustments to their flight plan. 
It seemed to take as long copying the procedural changes as it would have taken staying on their original schedule. To Charlie, making these continuous flight plan corrections was by far the most frustrating part of their flight. But the changes completed, the time came for jettisoning the lunar module. John said of the lunar module, quote, That Orion was a mighty good spacecraft, a real beautiful flying machine, had a great lunar base too. We will miss her, end quote. Charlie and John were both sad to see her go. In order to jettison the lunar module, the crew donned their suits just in case there was a sudden cabin pressure leak. Then they commenced final closeout, which they completed on the back side of the moon. As soon as Orion was on its way, they launched the sub-satellite from the service module which was to measure the gravity field of lunar mascons. I'm sure you recall mascons are areas beneath the visible lunar surface, generally in mares, that because the interior rock is of greater density than that of the surrounding area, exert a slightly higher gravitational force. Then... Five hours later, the crew was ready for their burn to leave lunar orbit and begin their trip home. Charlie was really nervous about this burn. The SPS had to work. If this engine failed, there was no backup. They would be permanent residents of lunar orbit with no hope of rescue. As always, the burn was to occur while they were behind the moon, out of contact with Earth. They received all the data necessary from mission control and entered it into the computer. Right before loss of signal, they received a go from Houston. 16. You are go for TEI, which is trans-Earth injection. Things got very tense aboard Casper as the astronauts disappeared behind the moon for the final time and they were prepared to shut down the burn if they noticed any anomaly whatsoever. As the computer counted down to ignition, it was as quiet as a tomb in the command module. Ignition occurred right on schedule. When the SPS ignited with its 20,000 pounds of thrust, it was a real kick in the pants. It wasn't much more than half a G, but Charlie felt like he was being pushed through the back of his seat. The spacecraft was lighter now, having burned most of its fuel and with the lunar module gone. The engine fired them off at 3,371 feet per second, an optimum velocity to get back to Earth at the proper entry angle and speed. The engine thrust vector worked flawlessly, without even a wiggle in trajectory, and the engine shut down exactly on schedule. 
The command module erupted with life, and they all let out a big yahoo. They were on their way home. At acquisition of signal, John reported to Houston. Roger, we just saw you come up like thunder, and that's how we're coming up. Just going away from it like nothing. Roger. It's better than AB climb, Pete. Roger, I'm saying. Apollo 16's velocity was now 7,957 feet per second, and they had already traveled over 375 miles from the moon. They climbed away so fast the moon was visibly shrinking. Charlie grabbed the TV camera and tried to make some pictures to send back to Earth, but he was so excited he could not hold the camera steady. We got we got some pictures of uh, Earthrise as we were climbing out. I bet they're really spectacular. Roger, hope they come out nice. This moon is really uh, is really a fascinating uh, satellite. Boy, there's a something new and different, and, and uh, you can sure see a lot of variety right here. This is almost, this is even more spectacular almost than the moon, the moon and earth giant when we were coming in here just uh, about four or five days ago, however long ago it was. I think the general agreement in the cockpit is that morale around here just went up a couple hundred percent. Roger, morale looks pretty good here, too. Apollo 16 climbing out now to 471 nautical miles above the moon, and that just updated to 480. Apollo 16 now 583 nautical miles from the moon. Uh, the velocity is uh, dropping off down to 7,425 feet per second. John Young so far has been doing most of the uh, talking, uh, reporting that Charlie Duke and uh, Ken Mattingly were at the available windows taking pictures. Really spectacular view. Really get the curvature. Tell us about it. Yeah, the old crescent earth coming up there. The, uh, the earth rise was just beautiful. It just came up like gangbusters. We were looking right out the window, and, and there you came. And uh, right now you're a uh, almost a, just a crescent earth, just a very sliver out there. And uh, I tell you, we can hardly wait. I know we got a couple of things to do before we get there, but we're looking forward to it. Looking out the center hatch window, Charlie began to make his report to Houston. Houston, we now have, uh, looking out the center hatch window, the whole, the, the, the moon fills the whole window. I can see from horizon to horizon by just being about uh, four inches from the center hatch window. What a spectacular view. Roger. 
That's from horizon to horizon along the equator. And we are really climbing away from the planet. You can just see it getting smaller by the second. It's really moving out, huh? Yeah, we're uh, doing just like old 97, really moving down the track. Right. Almost as fast as John was driving that rover yesterday. Roger. Apollo 16 was now over 800 miles from the moon. In only 10 more minutes, they were 1,600 miles out, really climbing, although their velocity was slowly dropping due to the gravitational pull of the moon. After the excitement of trans-Earth injection, the crew settled down for their three-day trip home. For the moonwalkers, it was basically an uneventful time, except for a one-hour and 15-minute spacewalk that was to occur the following day on day nine. On the other hand, Ken was busy. He had some more experiments to perform, plus he was the chauffeur. For John and Charlie, it was like, okay, Ken, please take us home now. Meanwhile, the geologists back in Houston were in a state of flux over the origin of the highland area the moonwalkers had just explored, and they were being pushed by the press to give some answers. At the crew debriefing conference with Capcom, the astronauts were told that because of the seeming lack of volcanic samples that were found, the back room had decided to reject their previously held volcanic theory, particularly concerning the formation of the Cali Plains. The Descartes material was considered still debatable. Almost everyone had expected the mission to yield samples of relatively simple frozen lava flows. Instead, they found breccias, puzzling and complex conglomerate rocks that had been pounded and formed by countless meteorite impacts. From these finds and data radioed to Earth by instruments aboard Casper, Muehlberger and the others had begun to restore an old theory that had been formally rejected, that the Cali material was slosh, or fluid ejecta, from Imbrium Basin, over 500 miles away. But John and Charlie did not agree with that hypothesis. So, when Tony, Capcom, asked if they had any questions, John reacted strongly and said, quote, I think it's premature to be making those kinds of speculations. I would rather wait until we get all the data in and take a good look at it. It's just too soon to draw conclusions on hearsay and not having the real evidence and not having all the data analyzed. End quote. Capcom, Tony, agreed with John, but reminded him that everyone was excited back home and trying to press with it. 
John replied, quote, Boy, I would not press for that sort of thing this early in the game because that's too speculative. In other words, it ain't good science. End quote. Tony once again agreed, saying, quote, I think you're right on, and I hope they heard you in the back room because I think I said the same thing this morning. End quote. Although the reporters continued to push for a statement, Apollo 16's rocks actually brought forth more questions than answers. Scientists would need to spend months and years analyzing the material to come up with some firm answers. Moving on. The next day, the crew began preparations for the spacewalk. Ken would be the star of the event. But Charlie was excited because he was going to participate, too, and be one of only a few astronauts who had gone outside the spacecraft in zero gravity. Recall that Ed White had been the first American to walk in space in 1965 during the Gemini program, but that was not deep space. In the Apollo program, Apollo 16 was to be the second flight with a deep space EVA. Now the purpose of this EVA was to retrieve some film canisters from the back of the service module. They contained film Ken had exposed during lunar orbit and would be used for mapping the moon. Ken was to be the retriever and Charlie was to be the safety observer. It took the crew a little longer than expected to don their three suits, so hatch opening had to be delayed for an hour. But thanks to the astronauts following some excellent procedures, they managed to make up 45 minutes of that time. After John and Charlie removed a lot of dust from their helmets and glove rings, they lubricated their entire pressure garment assembly. That made putting on their suits a lot easier and safer. During depressurization of the cabin, the crew noted that the rate fell to just below 0.5 PSI. They also saw some small rocks and one small screw float out the hatch pressure equalization valve. After the flight, they recommended that a debris screen be installed over the open vent of the outflow valve, and that was done for Apollo 17. After the spacecraft was depressurized, Ken opened the hatch. It was like looking through a picture window, but there was nothing outside except the blackness of space. Ken went through the hatch first and walked hand over hand to the back of the service module using some special handholds on the side of the spacecraft charlie followed floating out a body length and anchored his feet on the hatch seal charlie's job was to make sure ken's safety line oxygen line and communication lines didn't get tangled in parts of the spacecraft Fortunately, the oxygen line could hold up to 1,200 pounds. 
As Charlie floated out, he was again overcome with the awesome beauty of space. The panorama of the universe was spread out before him, and he felt like a spectator in an audience watching the play unfold. Ken was the performer, and the universe was the stage. To the right was the Earth, 198,000 miles away. It was a crescent Earth, just a thin sliver of blue and white, yet breathtaking to behold. Over Charlie's left shoulder was the moon, only 42,000 miles away and enormous. It was a full moon, and he could see clearly all the major features, the Sea of Tranquility where Neil and Buzz landed, the Ocean of Storms, even the Descartes Highlands. It was spectacular. Everywhere else he looked, it was blackness, the empty blackness of space, so powerful it seemed that he could reach out and touch it. The feeling of detachment he experienced was strange. It was almost euphoric, and he wondered what it would be like to float off into this blackness. Ken retrieved one of the canisters and brought it back across the spacecraft. It was the biggest roll of film Charlie had ever seen, weighing 80 pounds and a couple of feet in diameter. It seemed almost as big as Ken, and as he floated it like a big balloon toward the hatch, it bounced off the spacecraft and pulled away. The canister wanted to go one way and Ken another. It was a real battle, and the film almost won, but he was able to keep hold and shove it back to Charlie into the spacecraft to John. After retrieving the second canister, Ken floated out onto the end of a 10-foot pole which was attached to the hatch of the spacecraft in order to perform a biological experiment. Charlie went back inside to watch him from there. It was beautiful, the sun glistening and sparkling off his spacesuit. Charlie felt like he was looking at a picture on a TV screen, the hatch being the screen and Ken the picture. As Charlie was watching Ken, he noticed a flash of gold out of the left corner of his eye. Lo and behold, it was Ken's wedding band, floating, tumbling, and going out the hatch. The crew had been searching for this wedding band ever since Ken lost it on the second day of their flight. Now, here it was, about to float off into space and be lost forever. Charlie tried to reach out to grab it, but he missed. The ring was just out of his grasp and floated right on out of the hatch. Well, goodbye wedding band, Charlie said to himself. Lost in space. The ring continued to tumble, heading in Ken's direction. His back was to Charlie, so Ken couldn't see it coming. And since he was talking to Houston, Charlie was reluctant to interrupt. 
The next moment, Charlie saw it hit Ken on the back of his helmet. Man, that's neat, Charlie thought, expecting the wedding band to ricochet off his helmet and float out into space. Instead, it took a miraculous 180-degree bounce and floated right back toward Charlie, along the same path it had gone out. The probability of a round object tumbling through space and rebounding perfectly off another round object is practically zero, but it happened. Within seconds, the ring floated back in the hatch and Charlie grabbed it on the rebound. All this while they were traveling about 5,000 miles per hour. When Ken had finished the EVA and was back in the spacecraft, Charlie held up his glove and said, Ken, I've got something for you. There was his wedding band on the little finger of Charlie's glove. Ken was overjoyed. He hadn't been married long so to lose a brand new wedding ring would have been unfortunate. When Ken got back in, John asked, How does it feel to put it all on the line for a microbial biological experiment? Ken laughed and said, It's really black out there, needless to say, because of the lack of light. I don't think anyone will ever be very comfortable doing an EVA between the Earth and the Moon, or Mars. After the EVA, John and Charlie really didn't have much to do until re-entry. Charlie did another light flash experiment and collected small fragments of moon rocks that seemed to appear out of nowhere, but mostly they just floated around and enjoyed reliving the excitement of their three days on the moon. When time came for their last rest period, most of the pressure and tension had departed and everyone was feeling great over the job they had done. Charlie floated under the couch one last time and zipped up his sleeping bag. It was his turn to be on the electrocardiogram monitor, so he attached himself to the biomedical data harness and went off to sleep almost instantly. That night, he slept solidly for eight hours, and they had to shout at him to wake him up. Every other rest period, he had needed a sleeping pill to calm him down. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. <laughs> this is Michael Annas, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 367 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Rendezvous, Docking, Ascent Stage, Dump, and Ken's EVA. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our 40th wedding anniversary is coming up in less than two weeks, and Mrs. SRH and I are planning a trip. So I have decided to move the regularly scheduled episode to July 22nd. We have done some long episodes this year, so I hope that helps compensate for this once-in-a-lifetime experience. 40 years, and we are both still healthy enough to enjoy a second honeymoon. We are truly blessed. So, July 22nd for the next episode. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 191 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, some afterthoughts on this episode. I spent some time on the docking because Mission Control was worried about it. But when Ken pulled it off, what a sense of relief for John and Charlie. They had spent three days on the moon and were at last, safe and sound, back with the command module. They weren't home yet, but they were a whole lot closer. Well, how about those space vacuum cleaners? They worked for 20 minutes on moon dust. (laughs) I guess they should have bought an Electrolux or a Rainbow instead. (laughs) But all kidding aside, that must have been a mess to clean up. And how much of that moon dust did they inhale? It couldn't have been good for their lungs. And then they get there and Ken closes the hatch. (laughs) and says, don't bring that mess in here. (laughs) Now, the crew of Apollo 16 were sincerely disappointed they had to come home a day early. They didn't get to spend a day doing orbital experiments, and it was a point of pride to complete a full mission. What do you think? Did NASA make the right decision? In hindsight, Probably not, since the engines work fine. But they had to make their decision without hindsight. So there were some issues with the service module's propulsion system, and the crew only had a certain amount of consumables and power. So NASA decided to play it safe. Since this was the next-to-last moon mission, would you have gone for it? or played it safe. To be honest, I'm an engineer, so I would probably have played it safe, even though it turned out to be the wrong decision. Now, if you read John Young's book, I have found a few errors along the way, but I found a glaring error this episode. He wrote that the sub-satellite was released from the lunar module. It was not. It was released from the service module. And my source for that is the NASA Science website. 
So I believe it's correct. And that's what they did on 15 too. Well, the Internet Archive ran out of audio at the end of this, uh, near the end of this episode. So I had to present that geology conference myself. I know it doesn't sound as good as me just reading the quotes, but there just were not any clips I could use. The point was Apollo 16 made a major discovery that changed the current theory of how that part of the moon was formed. Surely a significant contribution to science. Had you heard Ken's wedding ring story? I had not before reading Charlie's book. He had lost the ring earlier in the flight, and he hadn't been married long, so it was a big deal. But what are the odds of it floating out the hatch, hitting Ken in the back of the head, and bouncing right back to Charlie? That is a one in a million chance. I thought that story was pretty cute, so I decided to run a little long and add it to this episode because I, I figured you would enjoy it. And finally, for those interested in the farm project, <laughs> while I was recording, you may have heard some machinery noise. Well, believe it or not, the builder has begun with my eldest daughter's construction. They are actually moving dirt. It's been a long wait to get started. But they finally are digging, at least. Now, our house has not started yet, but a little progress has been made. The builder finally got us the final drawings, and we signed off on them. And we, they also came out and pinned our house. Now, what that means is they locate all the corners and take the GPS coordinates and put a nail in the ground at each corner. I'm not sure how well that nail's going to hold up to the uh, <laughs> excavator, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't get that entirely. But uh, at least they did that. And I think we have all the permits in order and are ready to start, but we haven't got a start date. I'm hoping it will be in July. And for those really paying attention <laughs> and wondering about the floor for the tin garbage can building we made, or <laughs> the floor we made using brick rocks and paver sand, it came out okay, but not great. But it is better than a dirt floor. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had some contributions, and I would like to thank Robert D. from London, England, who donated at the Voyager level, Craig W. from Australia, who donated at the Orion level and earned a moon emoji, Andreas I. from Switzerland, who donated at the Orion level, Chris D. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level, Steve C. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Graham M. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. 
An anonymous donor on Patreon pledged at the shuttle level. DB from Maryland pledged on Patreon at the Salute Skylab level and earned a satellite emoji. And Justin J. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors are at 248. We lost some and we gained some and it balanced out. So we're at 248. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 357 and our goal is 500 by the end of 2021. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to give monthly. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Digging has finally begun on one house. Yay! After seeing the little flags waving in the wind, it was good to see the heavy machinery out here ready to roll. Now for the SRH drawing. Remember, the winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or the SRH archive magnet or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Bill Styers. Bill Styers, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 357 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, the Apollo 16 Flight Journal, the Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, the Apollo 16 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. Remember, episode 368 will be posted by July 22nd, so we won't have one in two weeks. It'll be July 22nd for the next one, and that one hopefully will wrap up Apollo 16. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.